Now let's begin reading in verse number 1 tonight, Exodus chapter number 4, verse number 1. We'll read down to verse number 9 and then we'll pray. The Word of God says, And Moses answered and said, But behold, they will not believe me, nor hearken unto my voice. For they will say, The Lord hath not appeared unto thee. And the Lord said unto him, What is that in thine hand? And he said, A rod. And he said, Cast it on the ground. And he cast it on the ground, and it became a serpent. And Moses fled from before it. And the Lord said unto Moses, Put forth thine hand, and take it by the tail. And he put forth his hand, and caught it, and it became a rod in his hand. That they may believe that the Lord God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, hath appeared unto thee. And the Lord said furthermore unto him, Put now thine hand into thy bosom. And he put his hand into his bosom. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous as snow. And he said, Put thine hand into thy bosom again. And he put his hand into his bosom again and plucked it out of his bosom. And behold, it was turned again as his other flesh. And it shall come to pass, they will not believe thee, neither hearken to the voice of the first sign, that they will believe the voice of the latter sign. And it shall come to pass, if they will not believe also these two signs, neither hearken unto thy voice, that thou shalt take of the water of the river, and pour it upon the dry land. And the water which thou takest out of the river shall become blood upon the dry land. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. Thank you for the privilege to be in your house. I pray, Father, that you give unction and power to the preaching of your word tonight. We know your word is powerful. But Lord, help us to handle it faithfully. And help us, Lord, to have the right spirit both in the preaching and also in the listening tonight. And inasmuch as we endeavor to hear from heaven, we believe and we trust. We've come here tonight because we know that you'll speak to our hearts. Now let us have hearts readied for it, and we'll give you the glory. Lord, we love you, and we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. I've titled the message tonight, Signs for Sending. Moses, when the Lord appears to him and commands him to go to the children of Israel make himself to be known to them, and uh, then consequently to go to Pharaoh and to make himself known to Pharaoh, he is sent with a message that he has seen Jehovah, I am that I am, is the name that God gives him, uh, has sent him and he has been commissioned to come and tell Pharaoh to release God's people. It's interesting when you see how God interacts with Pharaoh. You know, it's ironic because... The Calvinists try to make Pharaoh representative of every human being, when in fact the whole reason Pharaoh was dealt with the way he was was because he was not representative of every human being, but because he was the federal head of a nation. And in the book of Romans, Paul makes clear that uh, the passages that deal with uh, whom God will harden, he'll harden, whom he'll have mercy upon, he'll have mercy. It's very clear in, in Paul's writings and teachings that he's talking about nations and he's applying that to the children of Israel and saying if God for a season has turned his attention away from Israel towards the Gentiles, well, he has the right to do so because he's God. Amen. He can have mercy on whom he'll have mercy and harden whom he'll harden. It's interesting when you see how many chances God gives Pharaoh uh, throughout this uh, narrative portion of Scripture. I mean, over and over again, God gives Pharaoh chance after chance after chance But Pharaoh hardened his own heart, and he chose to turn away from the Lord. And because of that, the chastening of God just continues to increase further and further and further. And Moses is tasked with being the messenger of God's truth to the children of Israel, and then eventually to Pharaoh himself. When Moses is given this task, he immediately balks at this. 
Because Moses is not an eloquent man. We have certain ideas, I think, about Bible characters. Oftentimes they're formed from, you know, Sunday school lessons and, and uh, you know, things that we read as a, as a child. Moses, we imagine as this, as this great... I mean, he's the one that God gave the law to. But if to hear Moses tell it, he could barely uh, put two and two together when it came to speaking. He said he had an impediment of the speech. He, he stuttered, he stammered. He was not an eloquent man. And he had concerns that he brings up to the Lord that he is not up to the task that God has called him to. And I think very often in our life, we feel inadequate for the work of God. I know I do. We feel like there's no way God could use me. I think very often we see only our failures and flaws and shortcomings. Rarely do we have within the spectrum of our mind's eye the faithfulness of God. You see, the fact of the matter is, it ain't about what you and I can do. It's about what God can do through us. The day it becomes about what you and I can do, that's the day we've begun to fail. The more we recognize it's merely about God using us for His glory and honor, the more readily we'll be prepared to be used of the Lord. I wonder how many of us, and and you forgive me if I'm just sort of preaching around my message for a moment, but I wonder how many of us really desire to be used of God. I think a great many of us, we like the idea of it, but are we willing to step into the position to be used of God? You know, it takes faith to be used of God. It takes getting outside of your comfort zone. It takes stepping out on nothing but God's promise. Being willing to say, I don't feel capable. But God, if you've called me, I'm going to trust that to you. I'm going to leave the problems to you. And I'm merely going to be faithful. And I'm going to be present. And I'm going to be willing to be used of you. Moses is a man that did not see himself as adequate for the work of God. And he's not just worried about going to Pharaoh. He says, Lord, I can't even go to my kin, to my family. They're not going to listen to what I have to say. And he has three concerns, basically, and they're related to us in verse number 1. There's some other things as you move through the whole narrative, but in the passage we've read tonight, he basically has three concerns about going and bearing witness to the message that God has given him. Number one, he was afraid that they would doubt his testimony. He says very simply, they will not believe me. His concern in being used of God was very simply that people would reject his message and reject what he had to say. And I'll tell you something, inasmuch as you and I endeavor to share the truth of God, very often we will take as an excuse to not serve God, we'll say, well, nobody's going to believe me. And that's not true. The fact of the matter is a great many people won't believe you, but a great many people will. Uh, we were, uh, my, me and my wife were talking about today, we were reading a news article that said that atheism is now the largest religion in America. And that doesn't mean the majority of Americans are atheists, but it means just in the, in, in, in the, you know, plurality of, of religious representation, atheism occupies a larger place than anything else. And I was telling her, I said, you know, I don't know if I believe that. If you ask the average person out on the street, go down to Market Square and just start walking up and down and say, do you believe in God? I think most people accept and take that question to mean, can I say definitively that there is a God? And I think because of that, most people would say, well, no. They'd claim, well, I haven't seen enough to make me believe God. But I don't think most of the people that would say that would identify with militant atheism that we think of. I'm talking about the combative keyboard warrior that wants to find every time his uh, sweet little aunt says she's praying for him, he wants to blast her out of existence. How dare she say that? 
I don't think most people are there. Now, I could be wrong. I might be living in my little bubble. But I think most people, if you ask them, do you believe in God, they'd say, well, no, I don't really think so. And I say that to say this, people are looking for truth. We tell ourselves that the world is never going to listen to what we have to say. Moses told God that. He said, they're not going to believe me. The fact is, there was only one way that they could guarantee they wouldn't believe Moses' message, and that was if they never heard it. Hey, listen, friend, I, my, my preacher one time, somebody said to him, and you've heard me say this, but somebody made the statement to him, said, I don't like the way you witness to people. And he said, well, how do you do it? And they said, I don't. He said, well, I like my way better. <laughs> listen, 90% of it is just getting the truth to people. And if you try to take upon yourself the responsibility to make a person a Christian, I'm sorry, friend, that's too tall of an order for me or you or anybody other than God Himself. But if we recognize there will be some that don't believe us, if we go out there thinking that every seed that drops on the ground is going to bear forth a hundredfold, we're going to be wrong and we're going to be disappointed. But if we convince ourselves that nobody has got an ear to hear what we have to say as it relates to the truth of Christ and the gospel and redemption, well, we're just fooling ourselves. Moses said, they're going to doubt my testimony. Number two, he was afraid they would doubt his authority. He said, nor hearken unto my voice. Even if they believe me, they ain't going to listen to me. Now, if you ain't never raised kids, you might not understand this dynamic. How that they could believe you and still not listen to you. (laughs) There's been times I've told my son, that's going to hurt you if you do it. He'll say, I know, Daddy. And I'll turn around and I'll hear him go, ow! I'll turn back around. Whatever it is I warned him against, he'll have done. I'll say, didn't I tell you that was going to hurt you? And he said, I know. You know, salvation's really a matter of the will. It is. It's a matter of the will. We've been talking about it a lot in Sunday school. Before Nebuchadnezzar could come to know the God of heaven, his will had to be broken. And the will and the spirit are not always synonymous. There's times that someone's spirit is broken in the midst of God breaking their will. Now, listen, I was saved when I was a ten-year-old boy. I wouldn't say my spirit was broken when I got born again, but my will had to be broken. I had to quit depending on self. And I had to believe. And the fact of the matter is, we tell ourselves, well, even if I go and tell them, and even if they were to believe, even if they were to have no answer back to what I say, they're still not going to heed what I say. They won't accept my authority. Well, that's not a good excuse. Can I tell you very simply why? Because they rejected the authority of the Lord Jesus too. But that did not stop Him from coming and being made a ransom for you and I. See, these are excuses Moses is giving. Let me mention a third one to you. He says, they're going to doubt my integrity. They'll say, the Lord hath not appeared unto thee. Moses said, they're going to call me a liar if I walk in there and tell them that the the same God that appeared to our forefather Abraham appeared to me. Same one that walked by his tent door and had supper with him appeared to me. They're going to call me a liar if I tell them that. Can I give you a very simple answer to that? So what if they do? You know the truth. And I know the truth. I know what God's done in my life. Nobody ever may believe the things God's done in my life. But I should never allow that to dislodge me from the conviction that I have in my life of what God has done. The fact is, sometimes people will discount your message by saying you're a liar. Or they'll say you're deluded. Or they'll say, well, you know, you're just, uh, you know, one of those, uh, you know, Bible nuts or whatever derogatory term that they use. I would say this, it's easier to stand on the truth of God's Word today than it has been for the past probably 400 years. You know why? Because the world is coming apart at the seams. 
And Christians are starting to look not all so crazy anymore. I've said this before, but man, I, I listen, uh, there's people back, men of God, back in the, uh, in the 40s and the 50s and the 60s that was preaching that men ought to look like men and women ought to look like women and preaching that we ought to keep the, the gender separate and that we ought to keep a clear distinction between those things. And then everybody laughed at him. Everybody said, man, you're crazy. What are you talking about? You're just old fuddy-duddy. I mean, you're crazy. You're just, you're a fanatic. They ain't laughing now. Now that in public schools they're teaching their kids that they can't know what gender they're, they're not laughing at the old-time men of God now. I'm just merely saying this. The fact is, people will sometimes say that you're a liar. People will sometimes say that you ain't seen what you've seen. But I got news for you. Somewhere along the line is going to be somebody that's going to need to see something. And they're going to be listening for somebody else that says, Hey, I've seen something. I've experienced something. I've tasted of the real thing. I've, I, I, I partook in the real deal. I know that what I've got is legitimate. Nobody else may believe that the Lord God hath appeared unto me, but I believe it and I know it to be true. And there'll be somebody just naive enough to take God at His word and believe the truth of the gospel message. It's no excuse, but these were his concerns that he had. And so God responds by giving him three signs. And you know, in these three signs, I believe we see three works that God has to do in a person's life in order to use them. And this is really my message tonight. Three things God's going to have to do in your life and my life. These three things are present in the life of every person that's ever been used of God in a real and lasting way. And they're going to have to be in your life and mine if God is going to use us. So three signs that God gives. The first is He asks Moses what's in his hand. He says, I've got a rod in my hand. He says, throw that rod on the ground. When he throws it on the ground, it turns into a serpent. And he flees from it. He's scared of it because he's got sense. Somebody say amen to that. And uh, God says, grab it by the tail. Moses said, what? That's in the Hebrew. You don't find that. He said, what? God said, go ahead and grab it. So he grabs it by the tail and turns back into a rod again. He says, Moses, that's the first sign. If they won't believe that sign, I'm going to give you a second one. He says, I want you to take your hand and stick it down into your coat, into your bosom. Moses does that. When he pulls it out, it's covered in leprosy. And then God says, all right, I want you to take it and stick it back in your bosom again. He does that, pulls it back out, and it's just as clean as ever it's been. And God says, all right, Moses, I'm going to give you a third sign. If they won't leave those first two, you go down to that Nile River, and you take a pot, you take a bowl, you take something, and you pick up water out of that Nile River, and you take it and carry it to where those men are at, and you pour it out on the ground in front of them. And when you do, it's going to turn into blood. And they're going to see and know that what you've got is the real thing, that your message is true, and that you are truly a man sent from God. Three things that have to be in our life for God to use us. But if they are, listen carefully, if they are, they become great forces of convincing and convicting in our life. If we'll do these three things, it goes a long way to being an effective witness and testimony for the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me say, first off, I believe that there is a work in surrender that must take place. The first sign is this rod, this staff that's in his hand. And by the way, and you may, this may be coming to a, a, a pulpit near you, because I may preach on this soon, but I believe too that all three of these signs also point to the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe all three of them point to distinct ways in which His Messiahship was revealed to mankind at large, but especially to the Jewish people. And Moses, of course, is, is a type of the Lord Jesus. And I believe that it's a picture with this rod in His hand, Him releasing it, 
of uh, probably of the ministry and life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. But for Moses, I find it interesting that God says, all right, Moses, you want to prove to them that you're from me. There's going to be something you're going to have to let go of and you're going to have to allow God to take control of before you can take it back in your hand. You're going to have to surrender something to me for God to be able to see or for them to be able to see God in your life. You know, I think a great many of us struggle with this idea of surrender. The greatest addiction most of us have is to the delusion of control. That we really have control over things, that we're really running our life. Very often, one phone call can disabuse us of that notion. Uh, One tragedy can remind us at the end of the day, we don't have as much control as we thought. And so listen carefully, it's far better if you're going to come to terms with the utter impotence and lack of control that you have in life, it's far better that you come to terms with it through surrender than it is that you come to terms with it through tragedy. It's far better, in other words, that you can say with confidence, my life is in God's hands, than you merely say in despair, my life is no longer in my hands. So God says, Moses, there's something you're going to have to surrender. Notice with me the resource that God asks for. And I find it interesting the way God does this, because He asks Moses a question. Now, how many of you know this is true, that all God's questions are rhetorical? He's omniscient. He don't need to ask a question to find out. So if He asks a question, He's wanting you to find out. So He asks Moses, What is in your hand, Moses? And He has a shepherd's crook in His hand. That would be appropriate. He has, in fact, for 40 years been tending the flock of His father-in-law Jethro on the backside of the desert. I've preached on this before. I'm not going to take a lot of time on it. But there's two things I'd say about it. One, I think it's interesting God asked that question because we ain't all holding a shepherd's crook. Hey, listen, some of us are holding a pen. Some of us are holding a wrench. Some of us are holding a phone. Some of us are holding a dirty dish. Some some of y'all mamas say amen to this. Some of us are holding a dirty diaper. We all might be holding something different. But the reality is, if we'll take whatever's in our hands and put it in God's hands, God can do something spectacular with it. Instead of despising that we're holding what we're holding and not what somebody else is holding, why don't we instead just just negate the whole process and take whatever we're holding and put it in God's hands? In other words, whatever capacity you find yourself in in life, whatever place of service you find yourself in, give that to God and you'll find that God can do great things with it. I think it's also interesting because it was representative to Moses of his life. There wasn't a lot that a shepherd carried out into the field with him. And by far the most important of all of the things was the shepherd's rod, his staff, the crook that was in his hand. It was the tool, the utensil of his livelihood. It defended him against wild beasts. It, 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 it herded the sheep in so that they could be watched over and protected. It plucked them from precarious situations. I'm saying this shepherd's crook that was in his hand, this rod that was in his hand, it was picturesque of his whole life. He spent 40 years carrying that stick around the desert. It was all he had known for 40 years. And now God says, hey, this is all you've ever known. Your hand has probably grown to have the imprint of that crook in through the lines and the contours of it. You've only ever had this and you've never been without it. And now I'm asking you to take that thing that you've grown so comfortable in and so familiar with and to put it in my hand. Often the things that God asks for in life are the things we've grown most familiar with. And the things upon which we depend the most and the things that we think we can do without the least. 
And God says, that's what I want. That's what I want. You see, in your hand may be all manner of things. It may not be a shepherd's crook, but I bet you depend on it the same way that Moses depended upon that rod, that staff. You probably have something in your life that you think you could never live without, that you're terrified of, that might have even become an idol between you and God. You say, preacher, what do I do? Take that thing, put it in God's hands. We see the resource, then we see the release. God says, Moses, let it go. Let it go. So he lets his staff go. And of course, it turns into a beautiful horse. Right? It's audience participation out here. Got people neighing at me. People hollering it out. Uh, of course, it turns into a picture of a beautiful lady, right? Hey, I got this. I don't need that. I got this, okay? I'm good. I appreciate it. I appreciate the encouragement. It ain't children's church. I'm good. It turns into a... Thank you. Evidently, something that Moses feared deeply. You know what I think we often expect? We expect that God deals with us. We come down to this altar, some other altar. We fall on it, we plead, and we cry, and we beg God, and we say, all right, God, I'm going to give it to you. And we get up, and we expect our life to immediately get better. When in fact, often the scariest thing that we could ever imagine is what materializes before us. Moses fled from it. You know, it is a scary thing to surrender your life to God. I get that. And I can't tell you that the moment you do, you're never going to have another fear. In fact, very often that's when the old serpent will turn up the heat and try to make things as scary and terrifying as possible. You know why he's trying to get you to turn back on God? But Moses, he flees before it. God chases him down and says, All right, Moses, come on back. And he says, Go ahead and reach out and grab that thing by the tail. Now he's dealing with what we could imagine is his worst fear at least. And he reaches out, and you know what happens? When he takes it in his hand, under the instruction of God, it becomes a rod. Not just again, but it becomes a new kind of rod. Because from here, henceforth, this rod is going to be called the rod of God. And it's going to be used to perform all manner of signs and wonders and miracles over the land of Egypt. With this rod, he's going to bring the greatest world empire that heretofore had ever existed to its knees. Now, that was that same rod that he had carried around for 40 years. He never knew it was capable of that. He would have never imagined. But the moment he lets go of it and puts it in God's hands, it becomes something spectacular. Boy, what a picture that is of your life and mine. We can walk through life and think, well, God could never use me. God could never do anything in my life. I'm nothing special. I'm nothing spectacular. And, you know, the truth is, you and I were probably not. But if we'll yield our life to God, and if we'll give our life to God, and we'll say, all right, Lord, I'm yours. I belong to you. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. Then when we take that life back in hand, it becomes something mighty and powerful and divine to be used of God. You know why? Because it is now under the direction and governance of the God of glory. There has to be a work in surrender that takes place in your life before God can use you. You're going to have to, listen, I don't mean this ugly, alright, it may sound like it, but you're going to have to get over yourself, and you're going to have to give your life to the Lord, and you're going to have to say, I don't care what my hang-ups are, God, if you'll use me, I'll be used of you however you want me to. That's the first work that has to be done. There's a work in surrender. Let me give you a second thing this evening. There's a work in secret that has to be done.
God tells Moses, if they won't believe that sign, well, watch this, Moses, take your hand. As far as I know, this is the same hand he's born with. It wasn't nothing special, right? To, to Moses' mind, this was the healthiest hand that had ever lived. Ain't nothing wrong with it. He's been using it for, at this point, 80 years now. Uh, and it served its purpose. It's, ne- it's never failed him. God says, take that hand, stick it down in your bosom. When he puts it down in his bosom over his heart, he pulls it back out, and it's leprous. Now, what in the world could God try to be telling us here? Let me say this. This secret work that has to be done in our heart, there's some things God has to convince you and I of in our heart and life before He can use us. This work in secret, and what I'm talking about is your life with the Lord Jesus, your prayer life, your scripture life, your devotional life. I ain't talking about what goes on in the church house. I ain't talking about your witnessing, your soul winning. That's all good, and there's time to preach on that, uh, you know, later. But I'm saying your your devotional life, your private life with the Lord. There's two things that God does in that place. One, He exposes your sin. His hand looked healthy to Moses, but after he did what God instructed him to do. And isn't it, isn't it interesting that when he takes that hand, which no doubt is symbolic of our actions, our work, it's what we work with is our hands. When he puts it close to his heart and he pulls it back out, it's leprous. You know, oftentimes our works can look a lot different than our heart does. Oftentimes we can put on a good show, but if we really got down to the deep, dark recesses of our heart, there's some, there's some leprosy in there. There's some sin in there that needs to be dealt with. And one of the Holy Ghost's responsibilities is to convince us of truth, to convince us of sin, to show us that we've done wrong, to show us that we've stood aught with God. You know, the fact is, before you can ever be used of God in public, you've got to spend some time with God in private. And you can never anticipate or expect to be mightily used of God in public if you've not been in deep communion with God in private. I think this is probably where our greatest failing is today. If I'm being frank, if I'm being honest, is that we go out and try to do the public work of God without the private worship of God. And we find ourselves failing, 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 failing. (coughs) There's never been a battle won without the prayer closet and there's nothing for which the, unga- the Word of God is unfit to meet the task. But we got to spend time in it. So He exposes our sin. It's important we be spending time with God because God will tell us things that nobody else would have nerve enough to tell us. God will tell us when we're wrong. And God knows things about us that nobody else knows about us. God knows every heart that races or every thought that races across your mind and heart. And so God exposes that. And he shows Moses that there's leprosy, by the way, is a picture of sin in your Bible. He shows Moses that he's not as clean as he thought he was. Then you know what he tells me? He says, Moses, <coughs> take that hand and stick it back in your bosom. And I'm going to do another secret work. This time, I want you to pull it back out. And when he does, his flesh is as clean as the other hand. God, in that secret place, he exposes our sin, but he also expunges our sin. He deals with it. And listen, I, I, we could preach from now till Jesus comes on the blood and, and we could preach on uh, Calvary and, and the sacrifice of Christ and justification, how God makes all that possible. But can I just sum it up in one simple truth here and say this? It's in the secret place of the prayer closet that sin gets dealt with in the life of a believer. 
There may be a public dealing that has to take place. <coughs> if we've sinned against people, we may have to go to them and ask forgiveness. If we've sinned out in the open, we may have to stand up in front of a church family and say, man, I've sinned, I've messed up, please forgive me. But the place that the leprosy is really eradicated, the place where the sin is really dealt with, is in that secret place of the heart in communion with the Lord. You're never going to be used of God if you're not spending time with God. And you're never going to be used of God if you have sin in your heart and life. Sooner or later, the Holy Ghost, He's going to take that hand and plunge it down into the bosom, pull it right back out, and you're going to see all that leprosy. He's going to make it known to you. He's going to deal with you about it. There's a third sign that's given. I'll give you this and then we'll close. There is a work in surrender that must take place. We've got to take that, that rod of our life give it to the Lord. There's a work in secret that has to take place. We need to be spending time with God in communion with Him. But then there's a work in sanctification that must take place if we're going to be used of the Lord. I've been preaching a lot about sanctification. We preached this morning about consecration. Both these words mean to cleanse and to set aside for service. And what God commands Moses to do is to go and take a, a, a pot or a, a kettle or a bowl or a vase or a bag or a bottle, whatever it is, some vessel, and to scoop up water out of the Nile River. And then to take it, and there is a transformation that's going to take place, that's going to bear witness and testimony to the power of God. He's supposed to take that water and pour it out in front of them. And when that happens, when that change, when that transformation takes place, it turns into blood, and they're going to see and bear testimony to the fact that God has sent Moses. You know, we, we've talked about that, that surrender. We've talked about that secret. But we have to be willing to step out and be different from the world around us if God is going to use us. I sort of jotted a few things down about this and I just sort of as I was meditating on it and meandering around my the corridors of my mind, there were three things that God had to do to this water to turn it, or by turning it into blood, there were three things that God did. Let me say it that way. And these are three things that God does in your life and mine. Now, things we go through them, you'll understand what I mean. We see that there was a change in composition that took place. God literally changed the molecular structure. He changed this water from the inside out and fundamentally made it different than what it had been before. That's what God does when He saves us. He changes us. He makes us something different than what we were before. But you know our problems very often, God, we used to be water and God turned us into blood and then we want to try to look as much like water as possible. Well, our power our influence, our effectualness is not found in looking like the water. There's a whole river of water. It's found in looking like the blood that God changed us into. Again, I think there's a lot of, of truth to be found here relating to the ministry of the Lord Jesus. But think about this with me. Think about to the Egyptians and the Hebrews what water and blood meant. And I thought about Moses himself, man. We have no scriptural reason to believe. Now, I think probably living in Egypt for the first 40 years of his life, I don't see how he could have avoided the Nile River. But according to the testimony of Scripture, we have no authoritative testimony that he had ever stepped foot close to this river between the day that he was pulled out of it and this moment. Isn't it interesting the way the will of God brings us full circle? He was pulled out of this river by the will of God. Now God says, Moses, I want you to go back and pull something out of the river. 
God brings him back to that place where God had done that initial work in his life. You know, I found this as a Christian. We don't ever get away from Calvary. We don't ever get away from Calvary. I mean, at the end of the day, for all that God's doing, the Bible says that God has constructed the redemption of humanity, that all things might be in Jesus Christ. That all things might be in Him. That, that in Him all the fullness of the Godhead dwelleth bodily, that all things that the kingdom might be delivered up to the Son, that all things might lead to Christ. And all things pointing to Calvary, to that work done. You don't never get away from that work that God's done in your life. But think about what this water and this blood meant to these two different groups of people. To the Egyptians, the Nile River was the source of life. They worshipped the Nile River. And they saw that water as being the very life that God infused into creation, so much so that they literally prayed to it. But to the Hebrews, it was a scene of death. How could they help but remember and associate it with the massacre that Pharaoh had commanded upon the young Hebrew men, young Hebrew babies, the infant boys? It was a source of life to the Egyptians, but it was a scene of death to the Hebrews. You know, that's sort of how it is as far as this world. This world looks at itself and looks at sin and looks at the philosophy and culture and way of the world and they see that as life, man. That's living. I mean, go out and get drunk to, to, to share your, your intimacy with as many people as you possibly can. Just try to live and work and make money and spend it. I mean, just eat, drink and be merry. Tomorrow we die. They think that's life. But for those of us who have been born again, we look back and we say, man, that was the scene of death in our life. We thought that was life, but that wasn't life. This is life now. By the same token, when the Egyptians, when they looked at this water, uh, they or when they looked at the blood, they would have viewed the blood as a symbol of death. They would have viewed it and associated it with sacrifice. But God had told the children of Israel that the life of the flesh is in the blood. And that didn't just show up in Leviticus 17. God had said that to Noah back when the, uh, when, when the flood was over. So they would look at this blood and they would see it as an offensive thing, as a vile thing, as a violent thing. But for the Hebrews, man, they'd look at it and they'd say, that's where the life of the flesh is. You see what I'm saying? I'm saying there's a completely different perspective between the Egyptians and the Hebrews. And God had the ability to change Moses' perspective from the water to the blood. God had the ability to change His sign, His witness, His evidence, His testimony. Water into blood. I think it's indicative of the change that God makes in our life as believers. From being the source of life to the scene of death for those that don't believe, to being the symbol of death to some, but the symbol of life to others. I'm saying there's a clear difference between God's people and the world's people. And the moment that we try to short-circuit that, that's the moment that we have forfeited what is our great effectiveness in the world around us. Our, listen, our, our potency as believers is in being different from the world around us. If the salt has lost its savor, where, listen, it's fit for nothing. Wherewith shall it be salted? It's fit for nothing but to be trodden underfoot. What, what the Lord's saying is, if the salt doesn't have any saltiness, it ain't no different than the sand that we walk upon. Its whole import, its whole value, its whole function is based in it being different from that into which it is placed. Its composition was changed. You've got to allow God to change your life. And that takes place when He saves you. But there's a lot of people that then try to run hard and fast as they can back to being like the world and living like the world and appearing like the world. 
That's the wrong way to be running. You ought to be running to be trying to be as much Christ-like as you possibly can. There was a change in its composition. Number two, there was a change in its location. That water belonged in that river. It's where you would have expect to have found it. Moses, God commands Moses, take that water out and put it on what? Dry land. It was an uncommon, unusual place for that water to be. I think we can probably make the assumption that this did not take place right by the banks of the Nile. This probably took place wherever the Hebrew elders were congregated and gathered and probably outside of the peering gaze of the Egyptian officials. So he probably picked this up, took it way away from where it naturally had been and put it in a new place where it could be used. You know, God changes our location so He can use us. I don't mean our geographic location. I mean, He puts us in a new world, in a new environment, in a new climate so that we can be used by Him. We go from being naturally at place in this world to being wholly unnatural in this world without ever changing our physical location. In other words, we go from being of the world to being merely in the world through the change that He makes in us. And I'm telling you, if God's going to use you, then you're going to have to be in this world, but not of this world. I'm just saying it's a broken ideology that tries to make the church as much like the world as possible. And they give lip service. I've got to be careful. It's in what I'm preaching. But they give lip service to the idea of consecration by saying, oh, we're going to be radically different than the world around us. They try to make their music as much like the world, their dress as much like the world, their preaching, they try to turn it into motivational teaching and, and seminars. In other words, they try to adopt all the trappings of the world and then say, but we're going to be different. Hey, listen, one of the wise old church fathers said this, if it walks like a duck and talks like a duck, it's a duck. There wasn't no church father said that. Papa said, I am what I am. Somebody about said amen on that. Amen! Hey, Paul said, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace which was bestowed upon me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than them all. I don't think Papa said that last part, but... I'm saying we have to embrace the change that God wants to make in our life if God's going to use us. There was a change in composition, a change in location. Then notice there was a change in function. Now, normally they would have took this water, they would have come over to dry land, poured it out, and it would have just seeped into the ground. In, in, in three minutes, you would have never known that water had ever been there. It would have been absorbed into the earth, and it would have nourished and enriched the earth that it had been placed in. Well, that's good and everything, but God had a better plan. When it turned into blood... Some of it may absorb in, but by and large, most of it wouldn't absorb down. Instead, you know what it'd do? It'd sit right there on the top, and it would make a difference. It would be a witness. In other words, one perspective is going to be absorbed by the earth and enrich it. The other is we're not going to be absorbed by the earth. Instead, we're going to be a mark and a testimony on the earth, and we're going to bear witness of a heavenly truth. That's what this water turning into blood was doing. It was bearing witness that Moses was sent from God and that God was going to deliver the children of Israel. You know what I sort of equate this to? There's some people that they believe evangelism is trying to help the world with temporal means. 
I'm not against digging wells for people or sending shoes to people or, or buying food for people. I, I'm not against those things. I, I Genuinely, I'm not. We have missionaries that do some of those things, but they do them accompanying local church planting missions and winning people to Christ and giving the gospel. And I would say this, if we're going to have to choose whether we just as believers want to be soaked up by the world and enrich that ground, or whether we want to be different from the ground that we're placed upon and bear witness and testimony to a heavenly truth, I would say that our priority ought to be to be different from the world around us. To not, not just to enrich that ground, but to be different from the ground around it and to bear witness to what God is doing and seeks to do in this world. These three signs were given to Moses. And I think they encompass three works that God has to do. You're going to have to surrender your life the Lord. God cannot use an unsurrendered life. He will not share glory. He will not share authority. He can't use an unsurrendered life. God is going to have to do a secret work in your heart and in your life. What I mean by that is there's going to have to be time in the prayer closet if God's going to use you. And God's going to have to do a sanctifying work in your life. You're going to have to be different from the world around you. Can't be like that old water that's flowing through the Nile. You're going to have to be changed. You're going to have to be different from the environment that you're in.